Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And what are we talking about? Well, we're, you're introduced. That's it. correct. Yes. Sanctification today. Yes. Yeah. So we're in uh, Systematic Theology 2, still Doctrine of Salvation. And today we'll begin our first of at least two parts on sanctification. And so... As we've been saying in various ways, though, uh, sanctification is a vital part of the Christian life. We mentioned last time that true saving faith will always result in a life that is increasingly conforming into the image of Jesus. Uh, It's a person who's completely devoted to follow Jesus and all of his teachings, in other words. And there are many who think that you merely just need to say a prayer, that you need to raise a hand in a service. Uh, maybe conform to certain behaviors of a particular church culture, and that when they do that, they think it's therefore the evidence that they've been truly saved. Um, And then others are content simply to say that they just believe in Jesus, but nothing ever changes in their life. And so what we've been saying and want to say is that true Christianity necessitates true sanctification. And true sanctification is laid out for us in many ways throughout the scriptures. And so that is what we plan to talk about today. Did you know that that's the issue of sanctification is what helped one guy who was a Lutheran uh, become a member of our church? I think I remember that. Yeah, he belonged to the Wells, which is Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran, very, very conservative branch, really understands the gospel. But on their own website, they made it clear that though they believe in sanctification and holiness, um, they do not speak of it or teach it simply because they don't want to inadvertently teach works. Mm-hmm. And so, which is shocking because they acknowledge it's a biblical doctrine, it's throughout the scripture, but they don't want to emphasize it. And so it was really a struggle for him when he would come to our church with his wife, who was a member, um, and listen and he would hear, and he'd look down, and it's like, yeah, that's it does say that. And then he would go back to his pastor, and it went back and forth for almost a decade of mm-hmm. him just struggling with that. But the sanctification, it's, it's a real issue. Like you said, there's people who just don't understand it, um, or it's downplayed, and, I, and it's to the people's harm, I think. But, yeah. So we're going to deal with it like we always do with... Uh, terminology first. Uh, The first one that we'll deal with is in the Old Testament. It's called Kadesh. Uh, The meaning simply is to separate. Uh, It's favored by many scholars, but the fact that Kadesh rarely, if ever, occurs in a secular sense makes any positive conclusion in this regard difficult because of the limited evidence on which to base philological comparison. By the way, I'm reading from the a theological word book of the New Testament, because I would never use philological in a sentence myself. Old Testament. Theological word book of the Old Testament. Did I say New Testament? Yeah. Yeah, well, whatever. Um, so the the point being is that you'll hear it all time being said. It means to separate, but actually we don't have a lot of data to prove that. Uh, but when it's in the call, the 
the verb Kadesh is most frequently used to describe the state of consecration affected by Levitical ritual. So in Exodus 29.21, certain articles used in the Levitical service were consecrated to God and were thus recognized as belonging to the realm of the sacred. Transmission of the state of holiness to anything that touched a person or object that was consecrated does not necessarily imply that transferable divine energy exists in the holy. Rather, it seems that the person or object or object entered the state of holiness in the sense of becoming subject to cultic, which is rituals, uh, cultic restrictions, as were other holy persons or objects, in order to avoid diffusion of the sacred and the profane. Now, I don't know how helpful that was to everybody, but it, there's a lot there. Yeah, um, well, it's the idea that something's not inherently holy. Um, so like in the Catholic Church, for instance, like holy water. Right. Like, they, like as if something's infused into it to make it holy. Um, but when you look at the Old Testament cultic issues, um, meaning things associated with the Jewish religion, what made something holy is simply that it was associated with God in some way. Yeah, and it was set apart for that use. You, so, didn't, you yeah. didn't use your stirring spoon that was used on the altar or you know, All right. also to make your gruel. Because mm -hmm. now you're confusing too. This was set apart for a holy purpose, but it's not some special divine energy wandering around. Right. Um, so Girdlestone um, shows how it gets applied in so many different ways. So just hear how this word Kadesh is used. It it speaks of the camp of Israel, um, and you can look at the references on your own. We'll provide them. Um, the hill of Zion. The ground where Moses saw God, you, you remember there, it's you stand on holy ground. Uh, to the city of Jerusalem, to heaven, to the tabernacle, to the altar, to the Sabbath, the firstborn, the people, the man of God. Uh, these and many others all have one point in common, um, that they have a relation or contact with God. And that's what's key. Yeah. And then you have a word, Nazar. Uh, and the basic meaning of this one is to separate and when the when it occurs in the nifal, which is again a verbal form, um, when it occurs in the nifal with the preposition min attached to it, it has the meaning of keep oneself away from, basically. And the verb is used in the sense of separation. Uh, for instance, in Leviticus twenty-two two, where Aaron and his sons are commanded through Moses to keep away from the holy offerings that were presented to the Lord. Uh, these were portions of the sacrifices that were set aside for the use of the priest. Um, again, I'm reading from the workbook of the Old Testament. Um, but they could not use them as long as they were ritually unclean. Uh, the word is used in the same construction in the sense of separating from idols, Ezekiel 14.7. It bears the meaning abstain from when used with the min preposition in the hiffel, for instance, in number 6.3, where it occurs in connection with the Nazarite vow of abstinence. The idea of separation is inherent in the use of the word without men in Leviticus 15.31, where the Israelites were to be separated from uncleanness incurred as a result of certain physical discharges. Uh, when the word occurs with the preposition lay in either the nifal or the hifal, it connotes separation to or you know separation to something. Uh, it's used in this way of consecration to Yahweh. For instance, on the part of the Nazarites and of the consecration of the Israelites to Baal. All right, so that's two of the words. A next one would be Badal, um, 
verb used only the niffle and the hiffle. <laughs> Everyone's feeling blessed. <laughs> this is so bad. Anyhow, but you got to know it. You got to understand it. Uh, that's how Hebrew works. Uh, the basic connotation to be separated or to separate, to divide. Um, the word occurs several times in the context in which Israel's separation from foreigners is set forth. Uh, this was an ideal of the, or idea of the post-exilic community. Post-exilic, if people don't know, is uh, when Israel came back from the exile, um, reflecting really their desire to preserve the ethnic integrity of the nation. So in Leviticus 20, verse 24, the word is used similarly, except that it was God who separated Israel from the nations to set a, to a place of privilege. As a result, Israel is to make a distinction, a badal, between clean and unclean animals. The concept of separation inherent in Badal was used to separate uh, or to describe God's special activity in setting apart Aaron to the consecration of the holy things and the setting apart of the Levites. Israel was set apart to be God's heritage. Again, coming from the theological word book of the Old Testament. Yeah, so just a few words in the Hebrew. Um, and then in the New Testament, you have the Hagias word group. Uh, in the adjectival form, it can refer to the holiness of God, uh, Christ, Holy Spirit, the church, and the Christian life. Uh, in the verbal form, it's used in various ways as well. Again, you can get references to that in the show notes. Um, in the noun form, it's used to speak of separation unto God. Again, that's picking up on the Old Testament use of those terms. Uh, it's also used to speak of a lifestyle that's consistent um, with one who's been separated unto God. And again, you can get some of the references in the show notes. By now, you're hopefully picturing that it's the primary emphasis, so is a separating to a different purpose. Yeah. And it, it it's no longer to be used in this way, but this way. So whether it be a nation, a people, an instrument, it doesn't matter. These are holy because they're now sanct uh, consecrated to God. Would yeah. that be fair? Yep. All right. Uh, Hasiates. Hasiates is the next one. It's a rare wood. <laughs> rare word that only occurs eight times. It speaks of a disposition that acts out of regard for the moral law of God, according to Freiburg. So uh, it's found in Luke as well, throughout Luke and in Ephesians 4.24. But uh, again, it, it's... You're acting in light of the fact of God's moral law. Yeah. You want to do that other one? Eusebia. Um, Eusebia. Yeah, you, no, I always get the emphasis wrong. Eusebia. Yeah, there you go. Um, Eusebia. Yeah, but it'll all be Eusebia, and then I'll get an F in Greek. Um, <laughs> it's Wasn't it Carson that was really big on your proper pronunciation? Well, yeah. I mean, he wrote a book on called Accents. I know. I had to read it. <laughs> he was... But you, you actually—it was really required to properly pronounce what wasn't it in your. Oh yeah. yeah. See, it wasn't for us. Yeah, you gotta. I mean, he was really—he was really heavy on the smoothness of how you spoke it as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I was butchering. It, it was very intimidating. I mean, I just there's a picture of him that you know you can find it online, and he—it's just that classic Carson look where he's looking over his glasses, and. He's a very intimidating man in real life. Um, and you'll be assigned a passage to read in front of all these PhD students. <laughs> 
and you you get to the end of it and you're like kind of sweating and <laughs> not kind of like that kind of you just trip through it and then he just peers over his glasses and yeah you want to try that again <laughs> it's like no i, I prefer not <laughs> the bathroom first <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome story though yeah we didn't have i mean we had to read it and it had to be understandable but yeah you know the, <laughs> it wasn't like that um i would have just died it would have been miserable for me anyhow um it speaks of a particular manner of life characterized by reverence toward god and respect for beliefs and practices related to him religion piety things like that it speaks of a behavior directed dutifully toward god a devotion or a godliness and that's actually a that's probably one of the best ones for me when i think about what godliness is is it's it, that that it's a godward focus a godward mindset that you're functioning now with the awareness of God's presence and his holiness and his purpose and yeah. his name. Um, that's what godly is. So an ungodly person is not necessarily a person who does bad things. They just don't think of God. Mm -hmm. They're just going about, which is frightening because then you start to realize how ungodly people are <laughs> because you, you ask them, you know, so tell me about your decision. And you realize there was no thought of things beyond what made them happy right you know and that's an ungodly action even though it may not be seems a, neutral to us yeah yeah it's like what's the big deal about buying a pool you know it's like nothing other than you you never gave thought of god in that um and when that becomes a disposition of your heart you're an ungodly individual even though you might be again nice and pleasant right right so then we come to the basis for sanctification and just uh, the first point here is that the basis of our sanctification is found in the intrinsic nature of God himself. Which so, is important. Yeah. So Exodus 15, 11, for instance, who is like you among the gods, O Lord, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. Isaiah 6, 3, and one, talking about the seraphim, one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um, what what did you call the the thrice holy uh, when you preached on that? You, there was a term superlative. Uh, well, did, was it the superlative? I thought there was another term you had too that I had not heard before. I knew it was a superlative. Maybe I, oh, that was a long time ago. Yeah, that was like your first sermon, wasn't it? First or no. second? Yeah, yeah, second one. I think it was a good sermon. Um, yeah. Well, I, I if if I remember rightly, it's just. You, you have the way in the Hebrew it works is it you don't have like the of, you know, like um, like Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Oh. It's just literally Lord, 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 Lord. or gold, gold, meaning it's the purest it's of gold. It's the goldest of gold. Right, yeah. But, but never do you see something done with three. Holy, yeah, holy, that's holy. It. And so it's just this, it's utterly other of the utterly other yeah and it just kind of blows your mind that's how i always liked it uh i was always taught it of it's that other otherliness yeah and we can't even wrap our mind around that because yeah it's not the goldest gold it's the golder goldest gold it's the purest of the purest of what's already well, been pure. yeah i kind of think of it like <laughs> okay. in heaven where it says it describes the new jerusalem the streets paved with gold like that's like glass and you're like yeah but that's not what gold is it's like it is there yeah <laughs> and and it's like this is a, like a gold 
you've never even seen. Mm-hmm. Well, that's God. I mean, it, what, whatever you, and that's why you're not allowed to make a graven image, right? Because whatever you perceive God to be, you've literally created an idol. Yeah. Which is shocking. Yeah. Because, you know, it's hard to talk about God without forming an image and you have to fight it. Right. And that's I the do. challenge. Well, what I, when I did this one, this was a very, and I'd never observed this before, but he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you're expecting him to say, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his holiness. But he doesn't. He says glory. And so it was like, what's the connection between glory and holiness? Well, holiness is his intrinsic nature. It's his character. Right. Uh, nothing, there's none like him. Um, so glory then is one that utterly otherness is made known. It goes public, in other words, as one sure. man said. And but then you start thinking about that, and it's the whole earth is full of that, but it's still just shadows mm-hmm. of the substance, which is God Himself. And then you're just like, so I have no idea what God is at that point. So I've I've said this before. I follow a uh, I have like five people or five things I follow on Instagram. I hate that thing. But one is nature is metal, and. It, it just shows how brutal nature is. And what the guy is, so he's an avowed evolutionist and he's an atheist. And he, um, and so his comments at, when he waxes eloquently are just really revealing as, he, one, he doesn't understand the reason that nature is metal, as he would say, uh, is because of sin. Uh, it's not supposed to be that way. Uh, but then the other side of it is that he talks about how incredible killing machines these creatures are and and some of the ways that they do and what what goes on and he'll talk about but he'll just talk about how nature created up this amazing uh diversity of of creatures that do these various things and he's just marvels at and i'm like and that will be your judgment because the earth is full of the glory but man will not give him right. glory they will attack i mean it's romans 118 and following right it's and then man looks at an earth and a universe that's full of his glory and, and everything is screaming how if if a worm can be that complex, I don't even want to think about his maker, right? right. Um, and, and then they assign it to nature and, and give worship and thanks to nature. It's like you, I, you understand why the wrath of God yeah, yeah, exactly. is flowing forth from heaven every day. Yeah. You want to... Yeah, so if, if the basis of our sanctification is found in the intrinsic nature of God, then we would say the natural conclusion then is that it's only fitting that God's people live in holiness or in that separate way, if you will. So Leviticus eleven forty four: for I am the Lord your God, therefore consecrate yourselves and be holy. Why? For I am holy. Peter picks that up. And you shall not make yourself unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. Psalm 93, 5, your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. And the house there, obviously, it, it's always speaking of the people of God. Right, they're um, Israel. Yeah, right, exactly. All right, so with that, we can begin to develop a basic theology of sanctification. So you have three parts to it. There's um, uh, the process. The first is important because it's called the initial sanctification. And, and all that really is, is the act in which we're set apart 
out of this world, and we're now into the realm of the Lord. Um, so we're set apart under God's purposes. And so some people will call this a positional or a punctiliar sanctification, right? There's that point in time. Well, but it. it yeah. You were made holy. Yeah, there was a point you weren't, right. and then a point in time, the punctiliar moment where God made you alive together with Christ, and at that point forevermore, you've been now set apart. And, and you can look at some of the passages there, but a lot of people stop right there and they think, okay, I've trusted in Christ, I'm done. But that's not how the scripture would do it. So the next one is progressive sanctification, um, and all this is a theological idea found in scripture, and it's the continual process of the Spirit in the lives of believers where we're now being made into the image of the Son. Uh, so it's a process of increasing holiness in both life and heart. In other words, it's the process of becoming what you already are. That's a, a well-known statement. It's a good statement. Um, and that that actually is where a lot of the discomfort comes in in the Christian is, uh, you know, I've called it holy discontentment you know you're you're constantly aware of what you're not mm -hmm. but that what you ought to be <laughs> and and that and that's that reality of the now and not yet tension yeah. yeah and and for the for a true christian it's never gone it never goes away because you're the more holy and the more christ-like if you will you grow the greater you become aware of how not holy right you are if that makes well, it makes sense. I know it to you, but um, you know, we'll get around people who are just incredibly godly people at some point in our life, and yet, if you were to talk to them, the one thing they would never look at you is smile knowingly and say, "Oh yes, I am." Yeah. You know that that's just not there. In fact, the very fact that they would look at themselves in that kind of an arrogant manner would reflect likely. <laughs> that they're not quite grasping it. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't maybe acknowledge, yeah, I am more godly. I have, but but there would be that humility of understanding, and yet I know what lurks in my own heart, you know. And that that's the point where God's usually good for them bringing a trial, yeah, <laughs> just to show <laughs> to you purify that a little bit. And then the final one would be what we call ultimate sanctification, which is that point in time when either we die and are immediately transported into the presence of God, or when Christ returns. Uh, either way, uh, we are changed, and we are made fully holy and sanctified, if you will. Um, so it's an eschatological sanctification. It looks to the end, and it simply refers to what we would also call glorification. Yeah, and then, and then we get to the use of the indicative and the imperative in sanctification, which is where a lot of people... Uh, where confusion can happen, where yeah. we start making imperatives out of the indicatives and indicatives out of the imperatives. And so, uh, honestly, this is important and, and worth listening to. If you, unless you got this down in your thinking and in your ability to read the Bible, uh, pay attention to this. Yeah. So that this this is a very common event in the Bible, uh, where again it, it declares what has been done, but then on the basis of that truth, on what's been done for you. Um, it then tells us what is to be done, <laughs> right? Right. Um, if that makes sense. So th there's many passages. I, I just did the John 15, one through four one, um, where Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Okay, so where's the imperative in that? Verse 4. Okay. Uh, where he says, abide in me. So that's our command. That's what we're to do. Right. So, but you're, you're talking indicative, the imperative flows from the indicative. So what are the indicatives? In, in verses one through three here, um, these are just statements of fact. Um, so he, Jesus saying, I am the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. And here's a fact. Every branch that is in me um, that does not bear fruit, he, the Father, will take away. And that's a fact, too. Yep. And every branch <laughs> that bears fruit, he, the Father, prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Yeah, at no point in any of that, we're looking at that and thinking, what do we got to do? What do we got to do? He's not telling you what you got to do. He's just saying, this is reality. Yeah. Whether you like it or not, he doesn't care. It's reality. Right. So some people will read that, and they'll be like, they'll examine their life and say, boy, I'm not bearing fruit. So now I should bear fruit. I should work hard at bearing fruit, but nowhere is that commanded in no. this passage. Um, verse three, you are already clean. That's that punctiliar positional sanctification. You've been set apart. You've been made clean, justified, whatever you want to call it. Why? Because of the word which has spoken to you. So here's now the command, verse four, therefore abide in me. Not bear fruit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> abide in me um, and I in you. And then he says, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So he's not saying a bear fruit. He's saying abide in me. What's the natural result of that? Fruit bearing, right? Um, so again, let's not confuse indicatives and imperatives. People will then say, you know, they become worried because am I bearing enough fruit? Should I bear more fruit? What's going on? But not nowhere in there are you commanded to worry about the fruit. You're worried, you're commanded to worry about abiding in Christ. So when we mix up the indicative imperative, we get in trouble. Um, if you make that imperative come first, you enter into legalism. Uh, but if you only have the indicative and never move to the imperative, you have what we called last time that cheap grace. Um, you, yeah. Both the indicative and the imperative must work together. The fruit bearing is simply the evidence of the indicative that you're in the vine, if you will, right. or that you're abiding. And, and yeah. And, and Paul is famous for this. I mean, he does it all over the place in his writing. So he'll, in fact, that's why he writes his, um, the construct of his uh, epistles. So often the first half people have noticed it's theology and the second half is application. It's really indicative imperative. Exactly. Um, yep. he, so like in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, it's just a series of indicatives. It's just, these are all facts um, that he's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's, you know, he redeemed you. He's done all of these things. Um, and all we're supposed to do is praise. Mm -hmm. it, it's to his praise. It's it's to give a, create within us a, a thanks, thankful heart, but it's not a series of commands. It's, it's these glorious truths that then should motivate us in light of that. Okay, what do I do in light of it? Well, in chapter four, he then finally right. gets around and say, therefore, therefore walk <laughs> in a manner worthy of your calling. Well, what's your calling? chapters one through three, go back there, figure out what are the facts, and then say, in light of that, what's it look like? And then four through six, tell you. Yeah. It's, it's not hard, and but it radically changes how you read your Bible, and, it, and I find it very freeing. It is, yeah. All right, so in light of that, um, 
what we want to do then is next time explore some concepts related to sanctification. In other words, we want to talk about how fear and faith work together. Uh, we'll talk about some theological tensions like the old man, new man, which is very important, or the old nature, new nature, which is not the same thing. Um, how do these two realities work together in this now not yet state that every Christian finds himself in? And so in one sense, we've been set apart as fully holy, and yet we're not yet fully holy. So we'll talk about also some aspects of what assurance is and the concept of eternal security, along with that doctrine of perseverance. Yeah. So until then, make sure to tune in, join this conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts on sanctification. Don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell a friend.